Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beneath the Screen of the Ultra Critics. Got it, motherfucker. There you go. It only took, what, three? Three times? Shut up. <laughs> and I know I'm one of the people who signed off on it, too. Yeah, yeah, this is this is all on... Actually, I think primarily on you. <laughs> Shaka. Uh, welcome back to another episode of... Thad, what episode is this? Uh, what, like number you name? Do a funny voice. Oh yeah, I mean I can do that. Do you, is the moment it's, it's gone or should now. I still? Oh. Beneath the screen of the ultra critics, I'm gonna do it anyway. Because <laughs> uh, I like sounding like Skeletor. I would do it all the time if it wasn't for the fact that eventually I would be banished to the dark side of Eternia. I think is the rule on that. Not only that, but like, doesn't it hurt your throat when you do it? No, not me. I'm invulnerable oh, okay. to pain. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a new one. Okay. Just, uh, just, in, just uh, sadness is what I have. Emotional pain. Oh, okay. Uh, today's episode, we're going to continue a little bit from the last episode in which we talked about special effects, and this one is going to be a little bit about how to watch older movies and reconciling time and the cheesy special effects, and even really like style-wise of the movie as well. And I mean, specifically, I think it's important to lead off with the title because it, it is essentially just us being accusatory toward, I guess, the audience and everyone in general. Because our title today, unless it changes, uh, I mean, you've probably already seen it above the thing that you click. Whatever. You're watching movies wrong. You are. You need to admit this about yourself and we will work through it together. It's so not exactly a 12-step program, but it's a few steps. There are steps, and you should take them. We can't make you. We have uh, no authority. I can sound authoritative, but that's about all I got in my pocket. Well, yeah, I sound authoritative all the time. I find people often put off by my forceful opinion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure that's what it is. I think we need to start off by a lot of people have taken the cues on how to watch old movies from entirely the wrong place. And and to be fair, before we even get here, I feel like one of the things we're going to end up doing a lot in this topic is, like, couching it a bit. So so let's start off by saying, I like Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> I th- I, I'm pretty Science sure Theater. Jeremiah likes Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> and riff tracks, and the other assorted things that have come from that. They, they've done a lot of fun things... And they are, I think, made by generally good-natured, entertaining people. Well, yeah, and one of the things I love about Mystery Science Theater is the fact that it comes, the broadcast from the satellite of love. Yeah. Like, it, the intention of Mystery Science Theater is to mock movies lovingly. Like, they almost, at least when the, in the Joel era, they, they kid movies. In the Mike era, they actually started getting a little bit more pointed. But even then, that's because some of the movies they were watching got a little bit worse. Yeah, but I mean, even when um, when Joel left, I remember like the quote that he left on was from like the 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 circus of Doctor Lau or something, which is <laughs> also just like the, these are like you you don't know about these movies if you only hate this kind of movie, right? Uh, and I think, think are you I think about that the is... seven mistress, the seven faces of Doctor yeah. Lau. Yeah, yeah, that was it. That was it. Seven faces of Doctor Lau. Uh... <laughs> And uh, I like I don't know why that always stuck in my head because like that's one of the last jokes is like oh, what you left us a plaque with a quote from Doctor Lau on it what's the deal <laughs> one of my favorite movies <laughs> Tony Randall is magnificent 
but anyway, so so I feel like a, a starting place for you know the 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 tens of people who will eventually hear this, um, <laughs> literally tens of of people, possibly uh, dozens, a baker dozen yes. easily could be as high as uh, the sky <laughs> is the limit if. The sky is set incredibly low, um, <laughs> but yeah, we we love we love us some mystery science theater and some making fun of things. We we uh, I think collectively can agree on this as a starting position. Well, and even then, like the, the object of mystery science theater was to make fun of bad movies. Yeah, and I think what carried over for a lot of people is would just make fun of older movies because they're bad. And while there are a lot of bad old movies. I think there is a tendency to think, well, just because it's old, therefore it is bad. Yeah, the uh, the seeing any movie that has like X quantity of age or or just hasn't aged well becomes automatically fodder for riffing. Well, it's, it goes with the, there was an Amy Nicholson article. One, Amy Nicholson, by the way, if you're not reading, is one of the best film critics working today. Mm-hmm. Um, about she went to see I forget the name of the movie it was a Mario Brava movie and All right, I'm, with you so far. Hmm? I'm with you so far okay and it was there was a certain sect of the crowd that was mocking the movie and laughing at its cheesiness and its corny special effects and totally missing the sort of operatic emotional undertones of the entire mm. scene and this I is in some, a theater this happened yes in a the theater it was Oof. in a theater because at home it, w- it wouldn't have mattered. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm I just I'm baffled by that on its right. face. It's one of the things where, like, again, we were talking about uh, like special effects can be cheesy. I mean, uh, as we mentioned, the Muppets. There's nothing realistic about the Muppets, but they but work. they work. Yeah. <laughs> or, or yes, watching the the original Star Wars trilogy, Yoda is clearly a puppet. I disagree. Yoda is clearly Yoda. He's played <laughs> by Yoda. To say, we still just refer to Yoda as Yoda. It's never like in our minds. Frank Oz is thing. clearly a screen name because there was already a Yoda in the guild. All right, sheeple, wake up. <laughs> oh, shit. I killed Jeremiah. <laughs> no, I just love the idea of someone with only one name in the guild who happened to be named Yoda. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're like, well, I guess we'll just go with Frank Oz. Yeah, they're 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 actually a pretty common background actor, but you know, they 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 show up, they because do their Yoda shit. Yoda Junior was just out of the question. <laughs> Let's just make up two normal Anglo-Saxon names. <laughs> yes. All right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, and I mean, even um, you know, last time we were talking about Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, and uh, I had not. I mean, I. The first time I had seen it was to watch it for our discussion. I hadn't seen it before, somehow or other. Um, and I could still, like, even, you know, the, the effects hold... Uh, some of the effects are mind-blowingly great still. Right. And some of them you can clearly see, like, yeah, it's a person's hand through a wall and the candelabra is being supported by a string. And I don't care even slightly. I remember noticing that. Right. And it did not take me out of the movie at all. Because oh. everything about how it was put together, how it was presented was just selling it. Like, it was good. Well, it was like I told you, there was a, there's a series of videos from Brow, uh, by Browse Held High and that nerd with glasses. With mm. some nerd, angry nerd with glasses. 
The jerk with glasses, I believe. Anyway, so the guy with the, that guy with the glasses. No, it's someone different. He reviews uh, theme parks. Oh, okay. I do yeah, not know that some one. Some jerk with glasses, because that's part of the joke. Like she said, some jerk with the camera. Too many people have glasses. I can't tell yeah. them apart. Anyhow, they did a. They were doing a side by side comparison of Beauty and the Beast, the 1990 animated and the Cocteau's. Mm. And he was jokingly attacking the movie because it's sort of older movies are much more sincere about what they're being about. Yes. I think um, it's one of the things. Well, you've seen The Seventh Seal. Oh, absolutely. Many times. And I don't know if a modern younger audience would be able to appreciate The Seventh Seal because even though it's abstract, it's pretty blatant about what it's about. Yeah. And there's a sort of sincerity in the sort of metaphysical questions asked that I think a lot of younger audiences would, sn- would snicker at. Mm. If you understand what I'm saying. It's like, because the idea is not being ironic, it's being very sincere. And there, yeah, there, there can be a pretty uh, harsh response to that. Well, not only that, but it's like, oh, I get it. This means that, and this means that. Oh, that's really deep. <laughs> well, it is, because he's expressing what's in his soul. And right. he's asking a question, and like, the plot is just there for an excuse for Emar Bergman to have a discourse with the audience of, I'm serious, what about the silence of God? Doesn't that bother you? It bothers me, here's why. Right. And, and I mean, you you can find, fil- like, films that are, are unironically sincere, but not super common. Well... I think what it is is a lot of films nowadays telegraph what they are, whereas a lot mm. of older films didn't always telegraph what they were. And like there wasn't is, there wasn't an insistence on forwarding what your genre is. Well, like okay, uh, Alan Dwan, uh, Douglas Sirk, they made uh, Douglas, Douglas Sirk made uh, melodramas. Alan Dwan made melodramas and westerns and stuff. And mm. one of the things that Douglas Sook made some serious melodramas, but then he made something like Written on the Wind, which is both hilarious, deeply emotional, and highly melodramatic. It's right. three or four things at once. Alan Dwan said in an interview, he's like, a lot of times I don't think this, my studio producers realize I was making a comedy. They thought I was making Shakespearean tragedy. <laughs> and a lot of times you just have to look how the film is framed. Yeah. You know what actually that that you know what that makes me think of in, in terms of movies that I know, right? Uh, defending your life. Oh, awesome, wonderful movie. Be- Love because that what movie. is that movie? <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that question is that movie is amazing. If you have not seen Defending Your Life, it is just a a like this weird heartfelt like afterlife story. I don't know how to categorize it. Well, what's it's great it's, about defending your it's life funny is... and endearing and strange and wonderful. It's deep, but it never gives you the sort of feeling that it's trying to be pretentiously deep. It's just asking these sort of lightweight but heavy questions. Right. In terms of like, okay, let's say for starters, this is how the afterlife is. Fine. Mm. Let's talk about fear and how that's a motivating factor. And but I mean, even then, I'm actually... I'm a little suspicious of me leaning on that as an example because it is also, like, comedic and... Right. It does lean a little bit on irony in some capacities. But. Right, well, and then I think what it is is some people, like, the the cues of when something is being funny and when it's not. Mm. And I also understand that 
it's almost a little bit sort of hypocritical to be like, how dare you laugh at this? I'm like, oh, it, you could be laughing at it because it honestly amuses you. Uh, right. I was laughing in Titanic. It's not the best thing in the world. <laughs> anyway, uh, I think I, uh, I'll i blame myself, even though it's probably actually your fault somehow. I'll figure it out later. But I think we've we've drifted because we were we were looking more specifically the the laughing at I think in the the special effect and the genre movie context right. uh, around the the sort of riffing in MST3K type culture, and we right. we, we drifted, drifted a bit. So let's let's go back in that direction because I think the the one of the first questions that that you had written out was about what people are laughing at when they are laughing at air quote bad movies. Right, and like the special effect in and of itself, and if so, why? Like, do you understand the time period it's taking place and what's being able to be done? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is this is a super interesting question to me because, uh, I mean, I also, you know, came across uh, MST3K on late night flipping through channels like I think most people did, either that or friends directly introducing them who themselves discovered it by late night flipping around on channels. Right. But uh, my uncle is someone who uh, grew up on essentially the movies that they're mocking. Uh-huh. And he had, like, any time the topic would come up, he hates Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> because all it does is rip into movies that he just unironically enjoyed when he was younger. And well, I think that, like, the, the law, like, the, just the fact that that's not really, I don't know, the the, the complete disconnection of, of a lot of these movies and even just this, this sort of type of older, cheap, like, B-movie science fiction and B-genre movies and, and stuff like that, let's say. Well, it's a generational are, divide of how we look at the entertainment. Yeah, like, they've been sort of to- totally absorbed by the riffing mindset. Well, um... When Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie came out, they, it was about they chose this island Earth, which mm. at the time it was kind of a science fiction classic. It wasn't. Yeah, how yeah I, I, I like still remember with Forbidden Planet, but it was still very well loved and admired by people. And they're like, "Well, hold on now." Yeah, because I had seen the uh, like the monster from that movie in like sci-fi fan magazines and stuff right. before like in, in little like you know the the catalogs that sell, sold nerd crap before the right. internet was a thing the imagery from this island earth had entered into popular culture and not in a sort of ironic or bad movie way but in it's sincere and this was a top of its shelf top of the shelf piece of craftsmanship yeah and he, and a lot of critics were like this is funny at the same time it's like you're ignoring the fact of what this movie was doing at its time. Yes, now the special effects are dated and silly, but at the time, this was riveting. Yeah. The and, the sort of... And I, I think there's an interesting... Because I always have to at least uh, drag in parallel examples from other media, but I, I find that kind of interesting in comparing, say, the, the graphic-obsessed nature of a lot of uh, video game development. Right. Anymore. And, and we see a little bit more backpedaling on this in, in the sort of recent decade. There's been a, a lot more revivals of like older style graphics and things. But I don't know, for, for the longest time, all it was was like chasing the best effects and the best graphics and not right. really being concerned with the craftsmanship of putting together a, an interesting game mechanic or a well-told story or whatever. Exactly. And this goes back to what we were saying before. The special effects should never, in and of itself, should never be the aim. It should only be, like, 
an aid to moving the story forward. Yeah, I so mean, when special... you're laughing, like I said, are you laughing at the special effect itself, or are you laughing at the poor use of the special effect as sort of like a resolution to the climax of the plot device? Are you mm. laughing at just a bad story? Or are you Which, laughing at, yes, to be fair, clearly I do that's a, lot. a guy in a suit, but you know what? Clearly that's a guy in a suit is in Star Wars. Right. The Wookiee is clearly just a very tall, giant dude. That's true. Uh, I I have seen him without his mask on. It's bizarre. <laughs> Yoda's real, Chewbacca. Yeah, Yoda's back. real. These Chewie's, are the lessons she... I, I learned from Finn. Yeah, see, Yoda Yoda is obviously real, and uh, and Chewie <laughs> is just a trick of the light. Uh, it's all it's all done with mirrors. No, he's a guy in a suit. I just said that. <laughs> yeah, we moved past it. Um, <laughs> but no, I think yeah the the um, the. Uh, the, I kind of want to insert one of the, the the thing I was I was talking to you about before we started recording because there there are ways that these like these kinds of incredibly silly looking in the present movies can be sort of created in the now stylistically right because uh, the, there's a movie that that a bunch of my friends are are pseudo obsessed with I haven't seen it nearly as many times as them but it's called the Lost Skeleton of Cadaver right and it's this very like Ed Wood. Uh, just insane plot, uh, really obvious like cardboard effects, and you can see the strings moving, the skeleton kind of stuff, and just weird line deliveries, and and all of that sort of meshing together to make this just this pastiche like pretend lost movie from cheap B movie days. <laughs> I haven't and seen this, I, but I, this sounds like something I would love. I think I think you would. I highly recommend it. I think they actually made a sequel. Uh, as well but um <laughs> but it's it's one of the things that i like about that is because while it does seem to lean into the like oh let's let's mock uh these ridiculous movies with their obvious like you know uh crap production values and and just very like actors who clearly don't know what acting means but they're creating <laughs> something out of that like they're they're taking these limitations that we see and have sort of ironized but they're still doing. But they're instead of just taking the object and deriding it, which again I like mystery science theater, and they've done a lot of other interesting things, and I love the designs of the puppets and the personalities and right. the clashing and all that. That's fun. But like, I, I also like that that this kind of like taking that a step further and being like, well, what can we? What can we? What new can we make right. out of this? Uh, and I, I don't know. There, there's something about that that to me is a little bit redemptive uh, as well. I guess. Well, it's one of the things where, like, special effects are fascinating no matter the time. When you look at the special effects, it's like, say, silent film era. What they were Mm. doing was just editing or um, the sort of the claymation work they were doing for the early, like, silent shorts by the French guy whose name I've forgotten. The guy who shot the rocket into the moon's face. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, or I mean, one of my favorite, or, or the, the kind of, like, rotoscope animation stuff they would do uh, right. meshed with live action. Like, one of my favorite, uh, one of the earliest Superman serials, like, to fly, they just had the actor jump and then, like, rotoscoped in uh, an animated Superman flying off. Like, it was, well, it, was a, a it was out, a really interesting way of dealing with that problem. There's a movie out now called uh, Van Gogh's Story or Van Gogh's Love. Mm-hmm. And they rotoscope. It's all rotoscope, mm. kind of like Waking Life. Oh, nice. Uh, but but basically, it's all done in the style of Van Gogh paintings. Wow. 
Wow. And it's just That's trippy. It is. And it's about this this mystery of trying to solve why did Van Gogh kill himself. And it oh, all so, so some nice light popcorn right, fare. It all looks great. But it's very kind of boring after a while because it's a bad script. And <laughs> they're, they're trying to justify why they got into the position for the painting. And it's Aww. one of the things where, as we've talked about with Avatar, the special effects are great. But, that, but. That, there has to be more to it than that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's... That is one of the things with any of the the media that are essentially combinations of other media, like film is, uh, or or like with video games or comic books or any of these things that are are multiple artistic over like artistic forms overlaying each other. Being able to being really good at one of those things can make something very interesting. Yeah, but. I don't think any any of the I don't like without balance between uh, without balance and without meshing the different uh, aspects of it the you can't you, you hit a wall there right. you cannot really be great if you are only an excellent cinematographer and or designer and you don't know what a story is right well and to some extent going back to understanding the limitations of time of the time when you're watching like silent movies, you're watching people discover how to make movies. Yeah. Because there's no real... That's a great way of describing it. I hadn't there's really... There's no language of movie till D.W. Griffin's awful, horrible birth of a nation comes along. God damn it. But the camera, even in after, uh, up till that point and after that, the camera's as free as it's ever been in history because there's no sound, so they're doing all this incredible things because no one has ever said you shouldn't or couldn't. Right. And in fact, if you ever watch, um, there's a Buster Keaton uh, uh, movie called Sherlock uh, Jr. Yeah, yeah. There are shots in that that are literally like it's like watching an illusion. It's magic. Like you can't fathom how they did it. Like there's at one point that he's standing against a wall, and someone opens up a window in the stomach and they jump through. <laughs> and you don't know That's how excellent. he does it. And because this is before CGI, and this is all just him looking, using practical effects and lying to the eye, which is what cameras do and what movie does. Yeah. But when you watch a silent movie and go, well, that's clearly a special effect, also understand that there are no rules in they Like, yeah, it looks like a, it's clearly a special effect. Everything is fake. They don't care. They're not trying to go for realism here. They are merely trying to wow you and move you at the same time. Hmm. And then when and sound I, comes along... Sorry, you going to say that? Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. You're on a roll. When sound comes along, they then have to imprison the camera. And it goes into this giant, almost refrigerator-sized box to soundproof it so you don't hear the rolling and the clicking of the camera on the film. It's really bizarre, I know. And so when you watch a lot of films for like five years to a decade almost, when sound comes along the camera becomes stiff and they start doing all these weird things with editing and makeup. And some of the stuff from the silent films carry over, but then all of a sudden they have to change how they block a scene because the camera doesn't move as much anymore. Yeah, they have to, they they essentially have to like rewrite, they have to rewrite the script of how these things are done. Scripts begin to matter because they didn't matter in silent movies. Mm. A lot of times they would just put the dialogue on there for stuff they couldn't pantomime out. So when you watch an older movie, you have to figure out 
to some degree what's going on at the time. And I, I know we like to say you don't have to do homework to watch a movie, and a lot of times you don't, but sometimes when you watch an older movie, you do. I I think some, like, I get, I get defeatist about these kinds of things a lot because I enjoy just marinating in cynicism. But um, I think... One of the things that that gives me a little bit more hope is I think a lot of times these sort of uh, the the tendency to approach things largely just uh, ironically or or to not really be interested in the the older eras of things. I think a lot of that just does. I think a lot of that fades with time because I I mean even I think like when I think of myself as a reader, be that being sort of what I identify as the primary media that I consume. Uh, I'll buy it incredibly slowly because I uh, read at a rate that is embarrassing for an adult human. But <laughs> yeah, it's it's fine. I do. I live with it. But I I didn't really get into older literature. Like I started with the same stuff. A lot of people in my age group started with like you know, Goosebumps books and things like that. And then I branched off into you know fantasy adventure and science fiction and so on and so forth. And the first time they start like forcing you to read older, more important literature in high school. And depending on the teacher, I could be interested, but I wouldn't really seek it out on my own. And it wasn't until I became nearly an adult that I, I that I was really, I don't know if it's able, but in some ways I think it was really able to step out of the the tastes that I had already built up and be able to read things outside of my context. Well, and I think it's interesting you bring that up because, you know, there was a poll floating around a while ago that talked about, like, oh, over 45% of millennials have never watched in a complete black and white movie or something. Oh, no, I missed that. Well, and the thing is, like, yeah, that's disheartening, except what is it compared to? How many times has this poll been done? Right, what is this? Uh, it's just a number. It right. doesn't mean anything yeah, without a comparison. 45% of the people who took this quiz, and I'm just like, you know, look, here's the thing. You bring up a good point. When you're a kid and teenager, you're a dick. There's no other way to put it. Like me specifically, or no, no. When anyone, a teen, being a teenager <laughs> essentially means mentally and emotionally, you're just a giant douchebag nine times out of ten. Yeah, it's you're it's you're just terrible. You're fig, you're trying to figure out how to be a good person, and you right. never get there. It's fine. There's, like, there's a just wonderful line is. from Inherit the Wind: "Youth can be so pure. You don't like my husband, so everything he says and stands for must be bad." Right. And it's one of the things where, like, as you get older and you start, you do branch out. You do start watching older things and you start realizing, oh, wow, there's this not that much that separates us. Hmm. And I think there really is just sort of, like, that purity of youth that drives people to not want to branch out. Or yeah. just, as you said, like, when an authority figure says, hey, you guys should watch this, there's that person like, shut up, old man, you don't know what, anything about me. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes down partly to just giving people opportunities. And, and I think especially, I mean, depending on the streaming service, like it's, it's, a, it's a lot harder to find good older movies on Netflix now. Like they, they yeah. have become a lot. They used to have a lot, lot of good old movies, but now it's really Yeah, they've like become them. much more presentist. I think uh, the, only, like I, the only other mainstream streaming service I have is Amazon Prime. And they, they do better. Right. Prime's got, uh, Prime's got a pretty good spread. But still, like... Since this is the, the, I'm gonna, I'm reasonably sure that just saying that streaming video is the primary way that that people are gonna watch movies from now on is not uh, an insane thing to say. 
So, like, I think a lot of it does come down to the, like, A, having the opportunity, and B, just kind of being willing to. And I think, to me, in some ways, that's the real danger of the 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 riffing mode like look at all this cheesy bullshit being right. the default is it prevents people from being interested in it. like it becomes a it becomes almost a social risk right. to be in, unless you're around just film nerds in which right. case the oh yeah we it becomes it becomes a different kind of contest well, but <laughs> for me like i've always said like this you have they always tell you always say artists talk about have to be fearless in the art you have to be willing to take risks and mm. i feel the same applies for people who consume art or any kind of media you have to be willing to step outside of your comfort zone you have yeah. to be willing to go to the place you don't normally want to go i'm not saying like if you're like an abuse survivor or something you should watch things that trigger you that's not right. what i'm saying at all i'm saying if you don't like musicals try watching a musical every once in a while yeah. Push yourself. If you hear someone say, you don't like musicals, you should watch this musical, even if you hate musicals. Give it a shot. You might surprise yourself. Yeah. I know I a mean, lot that, of people that hate musicals those... but love Blues Brothers. Oh, that's so true. God, <laughs> Blues Brothers. Why haven't I watched that today? Um, <laughs> you yeah, probably I think have. That... You just haven't watched it today lately. <laughs> the, uh, the, what, like, where we get the ideas of of a genre what a genre that we don't like is right and how li- like how immediately limiting that because once you decide you don't like something you are going to stop seeking it out if you were seeking it out to begin with because i mean you know especially i think one of the the obvious uh, examples of this will be like romance movies right being a being a dude there was a, a substantial part of my life being raised in america not expressly uh, in, a, in a fairly average Midwestern uh, young dude way, I was, I'm not interested in seeing romance movies. Right. Yeah. And they're and, some of the most powerful movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a, a lot of these that like, I think part of this also involves just questioning why you're not, why you think you're not interested in whether it's romance movies, whether it's silent movies, whether right. it's whatever. Like, why do you think you don't want that? Because if you think you don't like silent movies because you saw The Artist, let me tell you a few things. The Artist is a good movie. It is really kind of tame and unimaginative compared to what silent movies are doing. But that's because Yeah, silent movies are doing some crazy shit. That's because the, there was a silent movie about baby farming one time, all right? <laughs> oh, actually, I, I meant to ask you this before, but I'd forgotten. But I don't know if you know this. There's a... Um, there's like a small group of people who make H.P. Lovecraft silent movies, like in the present. See, so I they did made... not know this, and now I almost want to stop the podcast, and so you can tell me. About it. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's just it's it's pretty easy to find. It's like the H.P. Lovecraft Film Society or something. But okay. I know they've made they made like a silent movie, like German expressionist style Call <laughs> of Cthulhu, and it's fantastic. For those um, of you who don't know what German expressionism is, German expressionism is that's another podcast episode coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> ba- basically, just the roots of all good horror that uh, are are that. And really, just really <laughs> awesome filmmaking, and also not yeah. just the roots of horror, but also uh, Douglas Sirk melodrama, which I mentioned earlier. But, yeah, but yeah, I mean, if you've if you've seen the music video for uh, Rob Zombie's Living Dead Girl, then you you yeah. basically know what what expressionist horror is. <laughs> but this goes into as we talked about, like understanding different styles and trends of how things are shot. 
Yeah. Because understanding the way we see acting now is not how we saw acting 10 years ago and 10 years before that. I saw a video of a, la- of a lady reviewing Howard the Duck. Awful movie. Speaking of special effects. <laughs> awful special effects. And she was like, all this is bad. And yet Taylor... Is it Taylor Leone or Leah Thompson? I, I, I don't... I've it, erased Howard the Duck from my memory. <laughs> um... The acting in her hair brought me out of the movie because it was just so dated. I was like, you can't let that happen. Because yeah, it, in it the 80s, is from that date. That <laughs> we thought it was awesome. Oh, <laughs> I, I look. I was I was vaguely conscious in part of the 80s, and <laughs> I get it. It was weird, <laughs> but that. I've heard people... I haven't heard that one about Howard the Duck, but I've heard that kind of argument before. And at that point, it's just saying, I don't like how things used to be. I know. Like, and I, it, the has, the, I'm fascinated <laughs> by the fact that when you're living in a decade, you don't see how fucking bonkers it is. Yeah, and the then, more like, decades t- you live, the more you start to be like, oh, that was a thing. Five years later, you're like, holy crap, what happened? What were we thinking? Five more years later... <laughs> Jesus, what was I thinking just then? It's amazing how you don't recognize the time you're living in. Yeah, it's it's like the air you breathe. You you have no <laughs> knowledge of it until it's gone. Well, and this sort of feeds into the idea of, like, I love postmodernism to an extent, but, like, postmodernism in and of itself means nothing to me. At some point, it just seems to be an excuse for being a judgmental dick. Okay, I'm going to limit myself here because I, I literally have, like, lectures about this. <laughs> but you're, generally speaking, I, I agree with what you're saying to an extent. Right. In that the, the way, the, the limitations that have been placed on uh, what, what, is, what we think of as postmodernism in film, art, whatever, it has, by and large, been boiled down to irony, which... Right. I will I will argue in some other capacity in the future that that's incorrect and reductive and blah blah blah. But that is like the the irony thing. That is a real thing. It's a real problem, and it is something that like it has become so core to especially popular art, right. uh, blockbuster movies, po- you know, popular TV shows, whatever. Like that is the part of postmodern uh, of postmodern approaches to art that has been glommed onto. I would argue, I think, because it's in a way, the sort of the easiest and the most profitable one. Right. Well, and then going back a little to what you said, I think that also comes from the fact you have people who don't understand the theory, mm. proselytizing the theory, and or oh, artists yes. who don't fully understand the theory, citing the theory as the reason they're doing something. Right. Uh, po- it, postmodernism it, it, is a pretty big, broad scope of a yeah, thing, and in and of itself isn't horrible. Yeah, it's a terrible term because uh, the 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 thing that I often compare it to is it has the same problems as the word theory, in that <laughs> in common parlance, it means some particular thing. Like a, a theory in common parlance does not mean the same thing that theory means as a technical term. Exactly, and this is actually the and, problem that scientists run into when they get uh, into court battles with creationists. Yeah, one one hundred percent. Yeah, you get you get people using the commonly understood idea of the word theory 
to argue against the specialized use of the word theory in in, in specialized context. And, and the same thing kind of happens with, with postmodernism, right. which drives me crazy because I like postmodern novels and art and films are my jam. Right. And, and I actually like the idea, <laughs> the majority but, of what postmodernism is in terms of right. like the sort of personal revelations that come from postmodernism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I mean, all like that's. Is, all of that is just my defensive way of saying you are right to criticize the hyper ironized, <laughs> uh, like limited version of postmodernism. But because I'm me, I have to have like a, a three to five minute rant about that's not what it really. But you, you're right. But it's not exactly. Ah, well, that's that fine. Thing. It's like how there are people who say they're socialists, but they're not really socialists. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> It's one of the things where people, there are words and languages that get used and really how language works. People start glomming on to certain like buzzwords that they like, yeah. that they think defines what they feel, but it really doesn't. But because it's been used so much to define that, now that's what it means. Right. But that's anyway, why when that, you read that, any academic paper, they go, so and such and such, here meaning this and this. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a reason that like academic language, like legal language, is often painful to read because if you're <laughs> if you're making a really good effort, you have to be insanely specific. Right, you have to like, and so in this particular instance, when we say "fuck you, postmodernism," what we mean is listen here, you hipster, ironic dick faces. Yeah, basically, it's basically all of this just applies to people with uh, thick rim glasses and to like weirdly greased facial hair. <laughs> <laughs> hipster like to slight digression hipster is a word that also has a fascinating etymology to it, <laughs> it really is uh like I'm going like, back did you like what describe it... a greaser or a hipster and now we're getting like, off topic again we have to yeah yeah back. okay back to back to you you were you were leading into the the uh critique of postmodern irony because right, right, the problem is, like, you, when you view art in this manner, this sort of ironic, detached manner, and, like, only viewed through your lens, you're sort of destroying the intent of what the filmmaker's trying to do because you are ignoring it to substitute it for what you see. Right, and right, by, right. And uh, while that is a perfectly justifiable interpretation of the movie, you also mm. have to take into account what is the filmmaker actually trying to say. Yeah. And I think a lot of this comes to an overreading of to to lean on theoretical theoretical nerd stuff again. Uh, the the death of the author being a big uh, article slash concept right. uh, in in postmodern theory, but a lot of people really overread that because it doesn't mean that what the author was going for doesn't matter. Right. It just means that the what the author was going for isn't the end of it. And you can and should consider things outside of the author's intended perspective. Right. It's um, one of the things where, like, I often talk about when you watch a movie, there are essentially four to seven movies going on. There's the hmm. movie that you're watching, the movie the person next to you is watching, the p movie that the director made, the movie the actors made, and really, there's more than seven, clearly, because the whole audience is watching a different movie. And yeah, while not, you all see essentially but, but the same thing, what you view it through the prism of your personal experience is entirely different. Right. Uh, the, the, I mean, the, one of the last lines in... Mm, excuse me. In the uh, the Death of the Author essay is that the death of the author entails the birth of the reader. Right. Like, it's it's not meant to be... I mean, I, in its way it is, because people like to attack uh, important concepts so that they can look rad. But <laughs> it, it, at the end, its core is very much about, you know, inviting 
more perspectives, right. not destroying the one perspective. And it's not saying the one perspective is the master, but it's the one that you should use to inform other perspectives. Hmm. It, like, it, what is the filmmaker's intent? And also understand that he doesn't maybe realize his own limitations because of the time period he's in. Mm. Because when you watch an older movie, you are going to be watching a movie that is more than likely 60 to 150% more racist and sexist than the one you're normally I mean, watching. I mean, depending. Depending, We, we right. still do a pretty good job today. Right. But it's one of the things where, like, you have to understand, like, what is, does it, is the filmmaker aware of the issues of the time mm. some of them might be trying to address those issues but failing miserably because they are limited by their own shall we say white privilege and not really re- recognizing their own place in the whole scheme of the oppressive patriarchy white patriarchy right the, just the the limitate like there, there are a series of overlaid limitations when watching older films like there's right. the limitation of the the social and artistic expectations of that era they're the technical limitations it's a whole thing right. and it's not to say that movies are a product movies don't exist in the vacuum i've said this in other episodes and i'll probably say it in future episodes they don't hmm. exist in the vacuum so understanding at the very least the basic concept of what's going on in the country at that time hmm helps not just with interpreting what the movie was trying to do, but how the movie was received. Yeah, and received at its time, as well as how it could, like, differences in how it's been received since then. Like, a lot of great movies today were bombs when they came out. Why? Why is that? Or sometimes um, Movie Bob did a a deep dive on Die Hard, and he brought up, like, look, you cannot watch Die Hard. Oh, yeah, yeah, the really that good series. Those are quite excellent. You cannot look at Die Hard without, at the very least, acknowledging the Reagan era and how this mm. fits into the country consciousness and narrative of the time. Ah, oh, sorry, I'm just I'm thinking about that series again. Uh, both <laughs> Die Hard, both Die Hard and uh, the really that good. They're they're both yeah. Movie Bob is for me one of the best YouTube movie reviews going on. Uh, I, I get a lot of mileage out of uh, Lindsay Ellis. Also, Lindsay Ellis some... is also really good. Her and Movie Bob are um, Actually, speaking of uh, limitations on filmmaking, uh, there's actually uh, since we see it since YouTube stuff came up. Uh, there's a video by one of my favorite sort of broader cultural commentator person who sometimes also focuses on movies, TV, or video games. H uh, Bomber guy uh, came out with a, a video this week about VHS format. <laughs> And the the just it's it's so the so interesting quirks about its cultural prevalence and also specifically what VHS added to the boom in horror movies. Right. Oh yeah. And uh, it was is it's definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it. It's Cisco well, uh, Nebo had a subsegment of the show called the uh, Dirty Creepies or something like that where they would talk about the really vile horror movies they found in the back corner of the video store. <gasps> Oh, really? That's excellent. That's how they, like, they're the ones who basically, like, were talking about the faces of death. Remember this oh, series? And yeah. they were the, and everyone, remember how when you were young, everyone was talking about how real the faces of death were? Yeah, I vaguely remember this. Yeah, and this was, like, in my 20s, I remember this. I watched an old episode of Cisco Neighbor, and they were like, this is clearly the fakest motherfucking thing we've ever seen. 
Wow, this. this. Oh, they were a lot. They were a lot more crass than I remember. Well, clearly, uh, this is the Shemini's effects. But they were like, <laughs> and they were basically breaking it down to how movies are made and just applying it to that. That's excellent. I have to see if I can find <laughs> okay, a fine. completely this legitimate is copy. This a newsreel footage. They have four cameras for this on-the-site news report. I work for the paper. There's no way they have more than one camera there. What local station is going to put four cameras on this event? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I know, right? Like, but of course, what we have there, we've pseudo-come full circle because now we have professional critics are literally riffing on something. <laughs> And this is my plan all along. But no, I, th- I think that that is interesting because that is a different kind of riffing. Because right. what what Siskel and Ebert uh, seem to have been doing is riffing on the hype. Right. Deconstructing the look. You, you people are looking at this, but you're not watching and paying attention. Yeah. You're getting duped. This isn't good. <laughs> and I do think that sometimes, and this is something that I've I've you know had to think about a lot from when I was teaching uh, fiction writing. Is uh, I think there is sometimes a fear or or a suspicion that if you spend too much time studying how stories are made uh, or how like particular art forms work, then you'll then they become like less engaging. Right. And I find like I I kind of I get that impulse, but at the same time, no. Like it, it makes it more cool to see a real like to not only are you able to appreciate a story of just like oh that was fun. Like, right. I enjoyed that just as a, a floating around individual consciousness. Right. But well, no, also, like, I can now, I now see all these interesting, like, I see the choices that are being right. made. I see, like, the, the, like, this use of framing or lighting or, like, not uh, of cutting a scene here instead of cutting it earlier. I've been watching a lot of, uh, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn movies recently uh, because, uh, for some reason, there's no real good reason. I, it was partly just because Blade Runner was about to come out. Are you a, a, a Refing fan out of curiosity? Kind of. Okay. It's, it's, I, I can't say, like, not in a cult of personality way. I think the things he does are very interesting. But, like, right. the, I, I had, I hadn't seen Drive for a while and I rewatched it and then I was yeah. like, I guess I'll finally watch Only God Forgives. <laughs> uh, which was fascinating. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know if I like, I don't know if I like it as an individual, but technically I find it fascinating. Right. Well, no, like it's one of the things where I don't really have an opinion on Ruffin yet. Cause I haven't really seen that many movies. Uh, I still need to see the one of his that's actually on Netflix, Valhalla rising. Cause it also yeah, has the brilliant Mads Mikkelsen in it. And we've gotten off track again. We did. But, but, well, no, the, re- the reason I brought that up was because I-, I started to become a lot more conscious because of other things I've been reading or-, or watching about film recently, just about how long his takes linger. Oh, yeah. Uh, and-, and just the the what those choices do to the tension in scenes and how they elevate particular parts of the story and stuff like that. Well, I mentioned briefly in the last episode, um, and I'm sure you've learned a little, we've gotten really bad at editing. Like, basic Oh, yeah, edit- terrible. Basic editing has gone out the fucking window. Sometimes I'll be watching a movie and everyone's like, that was really good. I'm like, this was horrible. What? (laughs) And I'm not even like a master of editing, nor do I even know how to edit. I just understand basic film language. Right. Yeah, you're you're a lot more sensitive to that than I am, although I'm getting a little bit, I'm getting more aware in recent years. Um, But it's... Understanding how something works doesn't take away the joy or the magic of it. Understanding Being someone how who knows actual magic, magic trick I agree. only adds to the beauty of it. Right. Like I, I still, I, even knowing and be and knowing enough about the theory behind magic tricks to to be able to puzzle out how a lot of them work, 
even ones that I don't already know, just right. makes me more interested in watching ma- like magic performers and uh, and and be more excited when something fools me and I'm not like deconstructing it, but like that the artist allows me to stop picking it apart for a second and I'll come back and pick it apart less than me. But you know, you, you don't you don't really lose that ability to to be drawn into it. And I guess at the end of the day, like the major criticism to me of that like approaching things with riffing always at the forefront is I think that is in danger of doing what people think studying art does. Right. Like studying art doesn't remove your capacity to appreciate it. I would argue at all. Uh, however, oh, like your reflexive response to be to immediately deride things, I think is far <laughs> more likely to. Well, because what you're saying is you don't want to, you don't want this, you don't want to let the story in. Mm. And that's what you have to do in order for it to work. And it, you ha- it has, you have to let it in. Um, one, uh, is it the second Matrix movie, Matrix Reloaded? Uh, yes. The second Matrix movie. On the DVD, there's a special feature in which they talk about how to do the car chase scene. Hmm. And that's special Oh, feature. yeah, because they, they built like, that big highway thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it is fascinating. The car chase scene Absolutely. is one of the better parts in the movie. It comes way too late into the movie to save it, but it's one of the better parts. But after watching that special feature, that car chase scene becomes a piece of fucking cinematic masterpiece. Because nice. I now know what they did, and I am fascinated that they pulled it off so seamlessly. I mean, honestly, the second Matrix movie is definitely worth watching if you cut out all the story bits. Um, <laughs> I, like, I think that's almost all the Matrix movies except for the first one. If you cut out the story bits, they're fantastic. I actually quite liked the Animatrix. I, I, I haven't uh, seen the Animatrix. I, I need to rewatch it. Which they spend like an hour at a rave party. I was done. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the weird rave orgy. I am and not I wild on. I love the Wachowskis. Since yeah, they, is one of the best things uh, <laughs> they've ever made. Uh, sorry, well, I I didn't hear you. What was it? Sense eight. Oh, sense eight. Sense eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I am still an unapologetic defender of Speed Racer. Which is, uh, Kevin Smith brought up a really good point. The Wachowskis are amazing at selling studios on their ideas. They really are. Because they haven't made, if you really think about it, a lot of money with their movies. A couple of the movies have made more money than God. But overall, right. the movies haven't been that successful. Yet each time they go to their studio, they're like, we got this thing. It is messed up. I, it still, is I still haven't seen... Oh, I still need to see Jupiter Ascending. I haven't seen Jupiter uh, Ascending either, but they sold a studio into giving them money for that. <laughs> right. Uh, and I... Yeah. For for all of the ways that, that they're, like the later Matrix movies went off the rails, or, or all the ways that even the other stuff of theirs that I like, I could still pick at. Right. They, they know how to get people to back their crazy, ambitious ideas, and that in itself is pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, but... We only got about ten minutes left, so we need to start wrapping up. Sure. Um, but essentially, what we're saying is, special effects and even the way something is shot, you this is tend to like there's this rule of thumb among modern moviegoers to ignore all the social aspects and everything at the time of the movie, and I think that's a danger. And it's weird. It is. It's, I don't understand it either. It is. It puts the movie in a vacuum, and you have to understand. Why are you bringing politics into it, man? Right, right. We've 
already gone over how politics is embedded in the story. We may have to do nine more of those, but special effects in and of themselves, it's like the Ray Harryhausen special effects. Like, yes, ah. they're cheesy, but there's a certain charm to them because they're trying, and they're not. You're not using a binary system here. There's no yeah. ones and zeros. It's on a program they developed for this. This is claymation. This is there's a lot of effort that goes into the cheesy special effects. And again, a lot of it is is the the. It's not even that those effects. I I don't think they've actually aged particularly poorly, but people's willingness to buy into them has gotten a lot shorter. I, uh, I mean, you know, the the claymation effects uh, in like what, I don't know, like Jason and the Argonauts with the right. the skeletons. I, uh, I, I still love that. People focus, I, for me, like on the weirdest things to nitpick. Mm. I remember when the, uh, the first Captain America movie came out. I was working at Target. And I was actually like, have you seen the new Captain America movie? It's awesome. He goes, I hated it. Why? Because he changed positions in the ice. And I was like, what? Like, oh, in the beginning God. of the movie, he's in one position. And in the end of the movie, when they thaw him out, he's in a different one. What the hell is up with that? And I'm like, how the fuck does that matter with anything that happened in the movie? <laughs> there's you there's a dust why up. He's positioned like that when they thaw him out because it looks fucking cool. That's <laughs> why, and that's all they're trying to say with that. But there was a recent every- <laughs> similar dust up that I remember reading about uh, because, as as you are aware, there. I, I don't know if our audience knows about this, but they're making a a new Star Wars movie, and. Um, <laughs> And one of my favorite the hell directors. You say, really? I didn't I think know, that was right? going to go through. And one of my absolute favorite directors is is directing it. Ryan Johnson. Uh, John- Johnson. Johnson. I I always yes, fuck it up. Sure. Uh, and one of the, when the like one of the fir- first or one of the early posters came out, uh, people like were in uproar because the scar on Kylo Ren's face had been moved. <laughs> It wasn't. It wasn't exactly where it was, like where he had been slashed at the end of uh, the Force Awakens, <laughs> and this was a thing. Well, like exactly, like they're focusing so much on the technicality of the detail as opposed to what is the detail saying in the broader scene of like, like as again, like the position of Captain America when he gets unfurled from the ice. They probably mm. put him like that because it has a more dramatic effect. Then the first time they showed him in the ice because they just had him in the ice. You just need to see a, a vague image. Right. And, and I don't know, that that kind of... I'm not above nitpicking things. Uh, you know me. Right. I, I couldn't make that case if I tried. <laughs> but... Uh, but the... There... Just the the need to start at that level and not be able to give something a shot, like dismissing all of Captain America: The First Avenger because his position in the ice changed between no, like no, no, shots. No, no. Just, yeah, yeah, First Avenger. That was the first movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I used the whole title. Yeah, yeah. I'm not used I'm to the whole title. I apologize. Well, uh, it was uh, it was directed by another director that I love, so I have to be the a other Johnson about it. that you like. <laughs> Exactly. Um, because if you make the Rocketeer, I will love you forever. But <laughs> Speaking of a great, speaking of a movie that like I think gets judged too harshly because of the special effects, The Rocketeer is a beautiful movie with some absolutely charming special effects. It is. I There are people who don't like... No, nah, I must have took it out. I, 
That's not a thing I need in my brain. I'm good without it. I don't need that negativity in my life. <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like in a lot of ways it's not like it's not a, a problem that can really be confronted directly. Like a lot because again, I think largely the cure to it is time, which is right. annoying because it just takes so much of itself. <laughs> Well, when you start like, okay, what am I really angry at? Am I angry at the sky isn't in the right place? Yeah. Or am I angry at because the sky isn't in the right place when the last time they showed me that sky, it had an important thematic meaning and was a clue to a future plot point? Yeah, I think being able to, to consider like, well, why does this bother me? Because <laughs> that, that's, that's an important step uh, as opposed to just going like, they changed it. And so now it sucks. Well, I think that we've entered an era in which criticism and analyzation of the media and art is at an Mm. all-time high, but it's coming at a price that we're not being self-critical or self-analytical as much as we should be. Yeah, honestly, I... uh, Especially considering, to me, finding a critic that you trust... Like, A, Metacritic should burn to the ground. Um... (laughs) Uh, but to me, finding a, a critic that you trust uh, and that you understand is the most important like thing in following diff- whatever type of criticism, right. movie, video game, comic, whatever. Uh, because then, like, once you figure out, you know, that they're re- that they're reliable and, and comprehensible, it doesn't matter if they like the things that you like. You could look at their responses. And be like, oh, well, they, they panned this thing, but the way they panned it tells me it might be really interesting. Not only not only that, but yeah, they, they hated this thing, but I could have told you they were going to hate it. This is clearly not that type of movie. <laughs> right. Uh, and so I think in a lot of ways, like, critics that are able to, to communicate what their, their personal interest... Like, a lot of people are like, oh, no, criticism should just be like a technical review, essentially. Yeah, no, uh, no. no. What they want is the common sense media review in which they tell the parents what's offensive and what's not. Right. <laughs> and that's insane. Um, <laughs> I don't... I don't. That's all I got on that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I want to know... I want to know everything possible about a critic's taste. And what their influences are, and what the and what they get into, and what they get down on, like that to me is is central, uh, because that shows me that 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 not only tells me like things that I can can relate and consider in terms of my own interests and tastes, etc., but it also tells me that they are aware of their own interests and tastes, right? Which is core to being a good like consumer and discusser of media. Well, one of the things that I do when I write a review, I'm trying to figure out, okay, this moved me or this pissed me off. Why? Does this thing mm. normally piss me off? Is this part of a pattern that I see? Like, you have to look at yourself and your reactions while also being honest about what you did and felt during the movie. Yeah. The best critics, I think, are honest about how they feel. And um, with that, I think we're going to call it to a close. Yeah, I feel like uh, we, we also have a new, like, buzzword to add into our our beneath the screen toolbox (laughs) aside from uh context we now also have self-awareness uh i feel like these will be i I feel like these will be things that we will constantly come back to in terms of relationships Uh, to media check out the other podcasts for the fundamentals you have the fundamentalists uh unabashed book snobbery ladies first our own podcast beneath the screen of the ultra critics uh And rate us on iTunes. Um, With that, that's all for now. See you later on in a month, Dad.
Be gone, fools!